We're studying 1 Timothy. This is the first letter to Timothy. This is part 11 in the series. Today's entitled, the message is entitled, How Do You Silence a Critic? So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 16. And to follow in the outline, if you would. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of God. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, completely to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself And your hearers, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this, your word. We pray that you would speak to us and help us to apply this word to our own lives. We know Timothy was a pastor, but yet, Lord, there is so much application. So help us to see it. I pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. The British theologian Leslie Newbiggin, who lived in the 20th century, died in late 20th century. He told the following story when he was a missionary to illustrate how different cultures can water down the claims of Jesus Christ. He says, when I was a young missionary, I used to spend one evening each week in the monastery of the Ramakrishna Mission in the town where I lived, sitting on the floor with the Hindu monks and studying with them the Upanishads and the Gospels. In the great hall of the monastery, as in all the premises of the Ramakrishna mission, there is a gallery of portraits of the great religious teachers of humankind. Among them, of course, is a portrait of Jesus. Newbigin goes on to say that each year on Christmas Day, worship was offered before this picture. Jesus was honored, Jesus was worshipped, as one of the many manifestations of deity in the course of human history. But this wasn't a step toward leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. It was actually what Newbigin called a step back. He said the co-option of Jesus into the Hindu worldview. And he explains it this way. He said Jesus had become just one figure in the endless cycle of karma and samsara. The wheel of of being in which we are all caught up. He had been domesticated into the Hindu worldview. That view remained unchallenged. It was only slowly through many experiences that I began to see that something of this domestication had taken place in my own Christianity. That I too had been more ready to seek a reasonable Christianity. A Christianity that could be defended on the terms of my whole intellectual formation as a 20th century Englishman, rather than something which placed my whole intellectual formation 
under a new and critical light. I too had been guilty of domesticating the gospel. Imagine being a young pastor. Timothy was probably in his late 20s, early 30s. You're put in a position of considerable responsibility as the Apostle Paul's hand-picked representative in the city of Ephesus, a godless city. Verse 11 in our text, Paul writes, command and teach these things. So the question is, what, what things? What things was he to teach? Well, that expression occurs eight times in this letter. Eight times. It's basically the sum of all the things, the instructions and the admonitions that Paul had given to Timothy, and which he was to keep on passing along to other people in his congregation. And then we come to verse 12, which is where Paul reminds Timothy of a very important point. And this is in the top of your outline. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. <laughs> Brings back memories. I was young at one time. I was the senior pastor of a church in Texas at the age of 31. I spoke on the phone to a young lady who was the, she was on the search committee for that church that interviewed me back in 1985. She's about to turn 50, so that made me feel really old. And uh, I talked to her about, you know, those years and how so she was so impressive, such a godly young lady at 15. And she said back to me, how did you handle all those people at 31? I said, that's a good question. I'm not really sure how to answer that question. I'm thankful that they took good care of me and were very patient with me as I tried to pastor them. You know, we look at the context here in this passage, and it appears that there were those who looked down their noses at this young pastor named Timothy, thinking that he had no right to be in such a position of authority. But if you put those two verses together, you could say that Timothy was called to a position beyond his years. So obviously, Timothy had experienced some criticism about his work. And maybe you can relate to that. Have you ever done anything where you've been criticized for what you were doing? I bet you have. I bet you've been criticized before. Have you ever thought, this job that I'm in right now is over my head? I think that all the time. Have you ever thought, this is beyond me, I need some help? You know, I'm constantly calling my Apostle Paul... He's still alive, thankfully, and I just bounce a lot of things off of him to get his insights on things. We all need mentors, no matter what we're doing. Timothy, I'm sure, could relate to how frustrating it is to be put in a position of authority when you just have so many questions still. And so Timothy hears this command, teach and command, which could easily be undermined by his youthfulness. He was a young man. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon could certainly relate. He had the same kind of criticism laid upon him. He was only 21 years old. 21 years old when he became the pastor of a very large Baptist church in London. One time a lady was shaking his hand at the door and at the end of the service and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, your ministry is so helpful. It does my soul so good to hear you preaching with such power. 
But oh, you are so young. And according to those who witnessed this conversation, they said that Mr. Spurgeon listened very carefully and respectfully to the lady and then finally replied, Well, madam, I suppose if you give me time, I'll grow out of that. You know, from personal experience, I can say that a hundred of you can give me encouragement on a sermon and one of you give me a complaint about the sermon. I don't ever remember the hundred who give me encouragement. I only remember the one. Which is why Timothy is urged to place his hope not in people, but in, as Paul said, the living God. Look at verse 10 of 1 Timothy 4. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope, not in people, but in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Many people in Timothy's day trusted in dead gods, which could not help the people at all. And so when feeling down, we should remember that Christ Jesus is the only Savior, the only living God. Your God is alive, Christian. He's alive, and we need to remember that. And so no one can rescue you except the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's look in the remainder of time that we have here this morning at two lessons, which come from verse 16, where it says, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. So the first lesson is this. Pay close attention to your life. Pay close attention to your life. I began this text by reading verse 9. And again, it's sometimes hard to know where a text ends and another text begins. But verse 9 says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is the third time that Paul has used this phrase in the, in the letter to Timothy. So what was he talking about when he says this is a trustworthy saying? I think the trustworthy saying goes back to what we talked about last week. So go back to verse 8, which says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. That's the trustworthy saying, that yes, there is value in diligent spiritual training. The very thing that Bo was talking to you about, men, Great value in spiritual training. Paul goes on to, t- to give Timothy one way in which he should commend his ministry if there are complaints about his youthfulness and gain acceptance of his ministry, and that is by setting a good example. Set a good example. You know, I was quite a wild kid. I can see myself running out of church like these kids running out of children's church growing up in the church that I grew up in. The principal of the high school was one of the elders of our church, so that was a little intimidating. Uh, He used to say to me, I can't hear what you say for seeing what you do. And that worked on me. Paul tells Timothy not to let anyone look down on him because he's young, but to set an example. Set an example for the believers. So Paul wasn't telling Timothy to do anything or something that he himself had never done. Paul had set an example before for his life. And I love verse 11, or verse 1 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. So if you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. We read from Corinthians 7 a little while ago. 1 Corinthians 11, listen to verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes and says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example. 
That is really hard to say. The Apostle Paul said that to, to the church at Corinth. You follow me as I follow Christ. And so he's telling Timothy this. He's saying, you set yourself up as an example before the believers. So that they might follow you as they follow Christ. And in all humility, that is a really, that is a really difficult thing to say. I hope you catch the, the full import of how powerful a statement that is. Yet Paul wasn't afraid to put himself out there to hold himself accountable for his own walk through his relationship with Jesus Christ. I ask the question, how many of us today are actually living for Christ? I mean, living your life for Jesus Christ outside of these doors. Obviously, you're here today and that would say that most of you are here because you love Christ. You love Jesus Christ. But today there are many who have fallen into the great American self-centered way of life. They attend church because it meets their needs, and when their needs are not met, then they probably move on. With all humility, I have to say to you, if I'm talking to you this morning, that is not the Christian life. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life involves denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus Christ. Even when it's hard. Even when it's difficult. So we set a good example, according to the Apostle Paul, in several ways. The first of which is in our speech, in the way we talk. In our speech, we all have to watch what we say. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 29. The scripture says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And look at the next verse. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's an interesting placement to me of that verse. When we engage in improper speech or coarse speech, we grieve the Spirit of God who lives inside of us. So if you, if you talk in a way that's improper, if you leave, use foul language, then you're actually living in a way that's not honoring the Lord by your speech. Our prayer should be Psalm 40, 141 verse 3. Psalm 141 verse 3, which reads, Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Timothy was to set a good example in his speech, secondly, in his conduct. Not just the way he talked, but the overall behavior was to be exemplary. The way to get people to stop looking down on you is to set such a good example that they have no choice but to look up to you. Speech and conduct actually go together. The Puritan Richard Baxter warned pastors to watch how they live, quote, Lest you may unsay with your lives that which you say with your tongues. It's a good word. And in my study for this message, I read this sentence. Listen to this quote. For better or worse, to a greater or lesser extent, congregations are made in the image of their pastors. And that gave me pause. Pretty scary thought, but I wouldn't say it's untrue. It puts pressure right where it should on the pastor's leadership. And then the third way that Timothy was to set an example to the church was in his love and faith. Paul once said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 
There are three things that remain. Remember those? Faith, hope, and love. What did he say the greatest was? Love. So the pastor is to lead by example in his faith. He's to believe in the power of a God who can answer our prayers. And so we petition our God through Jesus Christ on behalf of the church and individual members of the church. And then the pastor, he can do all those things. But if he doesn't love, he's just making noise, according to 1 Corinthians 13. He is to love the Lord. He is to love the people placed under his spiritual care, which means he's rejoicing with those who rejoice. He's weeping with those who weep. And then finally, impurity. Impurity. You know, our culture does not believe this, but sexual sin is a unique sin. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, All other sins are outside of your body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And so he puts sexual sin, Scripture puts sexual sin as way up high on the totem pole. Sexual sin is alive and well in the day in which we live. It not only destroys a man's ministry, but it does damage to a church's reputation. And ultimately, it dishonors the name of Jesus Christ whenever a pastor engages in sexual sin. Paul is challenging Timothy to moral purity, but not just outward purity, but an inward purity that begins in the mind. Sexual immorality always begins in the mind. To follow Christ, to follow Christ, you expect to be under attack from the enemy, which means you must do what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. You must take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Do you know that verse? 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. When you get one of those negative thoughts or evil thoughts, you immediately say, Lord Jesus, I take this thought, I give it to you so you might make it obedient to you. As Timothy read this, this letter from Paul, it could be he was reminded of the psalmist question in Psalm 119. You know, I've jokingly said to people, when you become a member of this church, you have to memorize Psalm 119. Well, that's quite a feat if you've done that. It's a lot of verses in that chapter. But early on in Psalm 119 is verse 9. And it asks a question. How can a young man keep his way pure? And what is the answer? It's a couple of verses later, actually. By living according to your word. So pay, pay close attention to your life, Timothy, is what he's saying. And all of us should pay close attention to our life. And then the second lesson is pay close attention to your work. Verse 13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. So before you can teach the scriptures, you have to first read the scriptures. And that's exactly what the early church did. You might remember that in Ezra's day, the, when the priest read from the law, all the people would stand to listen to it. And you might also remember that Jesus read from Isaiah, the prophet, when he was in the synagogue in his own hometown in Nazareth. And then Christians adopted this practice, actually reading from the Old Testament in the early church when they moved from synagogue to church. The apostles also instructed the churches to read their letters, these letters that we're reading today, out loud in the Christian assembly. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this in verse 27, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all of the brothers and sisters. 
So Paul told the Colossians to do the same thing. And actually the revelation opens with the same admonition. Read this to all the saints. Which means the early church equated, the early church equated the writings of the apostles along with Old Testament scripture. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And there's an interesting verse that I want to make sure you don't miss. 2 Peter 3. Verse 15 and 16. Peter is closing out his letter and he says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. In other words, the day of the Lord's not coming as quickly as maybe they thought, but he's coming. And it gives more of time for people to repent and to come to faith in Christ. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul, this is Peter talking about the Apostle Paul, Our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. We we found that out, haven't we? You know, there's some things that Paul's written that are hard to understand. Which ignorant and unstable people distort. And they do. As they do other the other scriptures to their own destruction. Scriptures? You know, I get letters from godly friends from time to time, and I never think of them as scripture. And yet here is the Apostle Peter saying, the letters of Paul are scripture. They have that same authority. So, it's not enough to read the scriptures. You have to also explain the scriptures, which is where teaching comes in. And this is done in two ways. First, through preaching. And the second, through teaching. There's a word that actually means to preach, to Give a word of exhortation, which is to preach a sermon. And then there's another term, which is didaskalia, which is the word for teaching or instruction. And so Timothy was to do both. He was to preach, which is exhort the people. And he was to teach and instruct the people. He was to catechize the people of God in Christian doctrine. And there's really no substitute for the systematic exposition of the word of God. Which is why we typically study scripture verse by verse here. John Calvin said, Scripture is the spectacles through which we see the world aright. And so if you don't see the world right, it's because maybe you're not looking at the Scriptures. Verse 15 says, Be diligent, Timothy, in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. And I don't know if you get this, but for a pastor, his life is his ministry. It just is. I I know some of you get that. And several of you have said to me before, I I don't know how you do what you do. And I wouldn't do this if the Lord wasn't with me. And I I probably would have entered into the ministry as I did so enthusiastically 30-something years ago if I had known as much as I know now. This is not what I thought it would be. It's a lot harder than I thought it would be. And I'm thankful that I don't do this alone I have the Lord with me, and I have a team of people. I have a a group of elders and deacons that support me, and the women in ministry that support me. I mean, there's so much help for a pastor if he will seek it out. And then verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, that's an interesting verse. As you read this, we know the Bible teaches salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. All right, we know that. So here the Bible, though, says to Timothy, 
that he almost has the power of salvation when he says this will save both yourself and your hearers. What's he saying? He's saying that ministers of the word, preachers of the gospel, have a crucial role to play in the salvation of sinners. Listen to this quote. The spiritual destiny of any church is tied up with the spiritual destiny of its minister and his faithful proclamation of the gospel. And so I'm so grateful that the mentor that I mentioned to you, yes, he was my pastor when I was a child, but he was very liberal at the time. And he had an encounter with the Lord years into his ministry. And then I came back into his life and he impacted my life spiritually at just the right time. When I went to him to tell him about my conversion, about how I'd become a Christian at a Methodist youth revival, he said, I'm so glad you didn't tell me this six months ago. Because I would have told you, well, that's just nice. That's a good experience, but it'll fade away. He said, I tell you now, God came to you in the person of Jesus Christ and saved you. And I'm so glad that we're going to do this together. I mean, he always treated me like a little brother rather than a father figure, but he really was a father to me. He taught me the things that Paul is teaching Timothy. Pay close attention to your life. Pay close attention to your work. And which one is the easiest to overlook? I say the first one. It's a lot easier to overlook your life than it is your work, isn't it? So I think it explains to me why a lot of times there have been pastors who have fallen. Because they didn't pay close attention to their life. They paid close attention to their work. Pray for your pastor. Pray for both your pastors. Pray for me that I might stay close to the Lord. That I might continue to serve the Lord but love him first. That's a good prayer to pray for your pastor. Only by careful discipline that Christian leaders, pastors, elders, deacons, women in ministry are able to determine that they will not neglect the one responsibility of paying attention to your life for the other. Paying a close attention to your work. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is Matthew 24, verses 12 and 13. Let's read it out loud together. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. In other words, you should continue in the faith if you're truly saved. If Christ is in you, you should keep on the faith. And not abandon it. Christ and Christ alone will enable any one of us to persevere to the end. But God's word is clear when it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will his good purpose. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our salvation. If we're Christians today, we're grateful for the salvation of our souls. That you, Lord Jesus, saved us. When we had an encounter with you that was life-changing. For anyone in this place at the sound of my voice, Father, who do not know you, and you know who they are, because the scripture says the Lord knows those who are his. Would you touch that person's heart, Lord? Would you break his or her heart over their lost condition and lead them to repentance and to coming to faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, even today? Thank you, Lord, that our hope is not in people. Our hope is in the living God who made the heavens and the earth and in his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name I pray. Amen.